Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the OIG Roundtable. Today it's really uh, it's really more of an intimate coffee hour because it's just Wade and I, uh, Jason and Matt are both on projects with deliverables and we're unable to make this recording. But I've got I've got my very dear friend Wade McFall, retired assistant special agent in charge from the Los Angeles field office of the OIG, and now a member of our SIU investigative team. And today actually works out well for the two of us because we have a, a little bit of an abridged topic that we wanted to talk about. Uh, it's an important topic, and it, it really works more on the law enforcement side. But SIU investigators <clears throat> should at least have some conversational knowledge. We're, we're talking today. We want to talk about the U.S. sentencing guidelines. And for those that don't know what these are, the sentencing guidelines are the set of calculations that are used in identifying potential ranges of sentencing for defendants that are convicted of federal violations. It's not just health care. It's any federal statute. The guidelines were created in 1984, uh, promulgated uh, through statute, and the U.S. Sentencing Commission was created in 1984, and they took effect two years later in 1986. And the um, the sentencing guidelines are used uh, initially by the U.S. Probation Department. Uh, U.S. Probation Department has two divisions. They have a pre-sentence investigations division and a supervision division. I know this because in my life before OIG, I was a federal probation officer in the East Eastern District of New York, one of the busiest districts in the country, and I was an investigator in the pre-sentence investigation division for a couple of years. And the main role uh, as a investigator on the PSR uh, or PSI team uh, is to um, digest the information relative to the offense that the defendant has been convicted of and do a investigative report on the on the defendant. Now, I won't bore you all with the nuances of what that report looks like, uh, because there are a lot of things that are outside of the investigation that led to the criminal plea or conviction, such as the background of the person, educational, social, psychological, uh, medical history, financial history, ability to pay, things of that sort. But the big piece is going to be what they call the offense conduct section. And that's where a recitation of the facts of the case are put into a report for the judge to review. And the probation department then goes and uses the U.S. sentencing guidelines to conduct a series of calculations that come uh, ultimately to what they call a total offense score. You take that total offense score relative to the to the defendant's prior criminal history, and you get a sentencing range. And we're going to show you a little bit uh, later on in this podcast about what that looks like, uh, that sentencing table. We're going to kind of just walk people through just so they could see it. But the key piece of this is that within the offense conduct, the facts um, are laid out, uh, and these are in summary. These are not a you know verbatim of a three-year investigation. The, the goal of the probation department is to synthesize the facts of the case to be able to come up with um, kind of a summary of these facts, to come up with a series of calculations that are done through the U.S. sentencing guidelines. Why are the sentencing guidelines important to an SIU investigator? Well, so first of all, the number one thing in healthcare fraud is going to be the loss amount and the loss amount calculations. And that is the driving force um, in, in what they call enhancements. So within the sentencing guidelines, there's a chart in which you take a look at the statutes that the person has either been convicted of or pleaded guilty to. And the statutes will equate back to a chapter and section within the U.S. sentencing guidelines. 
And so there's going to be what they call a base offense level, which is a number. And then there are going to be enhancements based upon other facts that have been identified through the course of the investigation. But one of the big driving factors is what is the loss amount? Now, on the SIU side, there's uh, there's always the use of the vernacular uh, versus in law enforcement. And this is where oftentimes a law enforcement liaison can really help because the terminology may be similar and may have similar meaning but the thrust is going to be different. You know, in the SIU space, I know it's oftentimes that we, and I say we, because now I'm in that space, is that we often use the term exposure to mean what the potential loss amounts are or not, as the case may be. Because oftentimes you have to go back to the plan and the SIU team or the payment integrity team and ask them what they mean by exposure. And so for those of you on the SIU side, I think it's very important that you consider how you're defining the word exposure versus loss amount. You know, Wade and I, we were just talking about this beforehand, is that if a, if a provider has been identified as having um, fraud, waste, or abuse-related issues involving an evaluation and management code, let's take 99215, unless, that, unless it's been identified that the provider's billings are 100% fraudulent or false or you know, from an FWA perspective, and it's been empirically identified through statistical sampling that the universe of their billings are false or fraudulent, you you are at a position where it's a challenge to say your exposure is the cumulative billings. Meaning if the provider billed for a 99215 for 12 months and he or she got paid a million dollars, unless you can show what percentage of that million dollars is fraudulent, it's a challenge to articulate that your exposure is a million dollars. Because in the legal side, your exposure is going to be what that loss amount is. Just, you know, definitionally, it's looked at differently. So, wait, let's talk a little about that. Because, you know, from an OIG perspective, we care about loss amounts. From an SIU perspective, you want to know kind of what's the totality of what this provider got paid versus what's really the loss amount. And then kind of in the middle is, you know, what's somebody going to go for in a discussion? Yeah, and I I think it's important too. I mean, you know, from the OIG perspective, we we probably focused more on the sentencing guidelines as as everything we did was not everything we did was criminal, but we we tried to work cases with the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office. So it, there may be less of that with an SIU, although they are probably still referring to the Medicaid fraud division or whatever they're they're uh, labeled in each different uh, state. But just like as, as you were talking about the offense level and the the monetary uh, effect on it, I, I think that you know you start off with a base level, and that can be um, base. One of the ways I used to look at it is like a base level of like zero or one is if you think about something like trespassing or something very minor, all the way to the other end of the extreme that might be terrorism or murder or that type of thing. But within that, when when you have fraud that's somewhere you know in the middle, it's probably not halfway there, but twenty or thirty percent up the chart, something like that. But as you start looking at the loss amounts, and you, know, you dis- distinguish between you know exposure and actual losses, but I think it was um, for like fifty thousand dollar loss, it would go up the um, level would go up like six positions, and most of the cases we worked were well over 
50,000. It was, you know, 10 times that. So when you get those kind of numbers, millions of dollars, it really takes that offense level from a lower amount. And it's probably the biggest factor in healthcare fraud cases as far as moving the needle on, on the sentences. It's going to be, it's a number of things, but the, the loss amount is a big one. The, the, the role of the subject, whether they were a major role could be either an aggravating or mitigating circumstance. Um, a lot of it has to do as well with if there's harm, if there's patient harm, that's that's a big one. Um, another one that has affected more recently, uh, as in the you know the early 90s, the cases mm -hmm. seem to be much more complex that they're involved with you know money laundering, shell companies, those types of things, and those can mm -hmm. be looked at as you know circumstances that that move the needle as well as far as the offense level. If there's a lot of complex planning and that type of thing that's taken into consideration so so as you're working your case and you're seeing those types of things it's a good idea to make notes of it so you don't have to you know at, you know after trial whatever then they the prosecutor might come to you and you know hey we're working on the sentencing and you have right. to go back and, and reinvestigate it so if you make notes of these types of things that are that would affect the table right it's a, it's a it's a benefit to do that as you're working the investigation so I'm putting up on the screen for everybody to see essentially what Wade is talking about, which is the increase in the table and, you know, the, how the numbers have changed. And, you know, Wade, you're talking about that $50,000 number. And remember, every year the U.S. sentencing guidelines are updated, are changed to be commensurate with today's crimes and the specific offense characteristics that exist. And so what Wade is talking about um, is you know essentially this the premise of the basic the basic guideline calculations is that you've got these base offense levels and then as you start to add depending upon what the loss amount is how that increase applies and how that increase works towards um, increasing what that guideline calculation is interestingly enough <clears throat> in preparing to to do the podcast today um, I pulled up some quick facts on healthcare fraud. Um, and this is what I last found was from analysis that was done from fiscal year 2018 um, regarding healthcare. Um, 62% of healthcare offenses were committed by men. Let me, I'm going to put this up for everybody to see because this was interesting to me. Um, and the one thing that really kind of got me was the, the thing I'm highlighting here is that healthcare fraud has decreased by 16% since fiscal of 2014. So from fiscal 2014 to fiscal 2018, there was a 16% decrease. I'm going to go back and do a little more research because I want to see um, what the statistics are from post 2018 because you've got things like COVID. You've got an increase in um, several strike force areas. For example, in 2018, um, you had the, in, the, in, the, the inclusion of additional cities and states, New Jersey, Philadelphia, to name two. You had the Appalachian Task Force, which, which was created. And then you had the, um, the New England Task Force for opioids. So I have to think that there's going to be that there was an increase in this. Um, what I thought was interesting 
was that, you know, what we see in the healthcare space, and, and we know this to be the case, 86.8% of offenders uh, had a criminal history category of one, meaning they had no criminal history that was reported or a criminal history that was so old that it wasn't reportable um, for the purposes of sentencing. You know, we know that for the most part. Healthcare providers uh, are, are, you know, kind of one and done, right? Because in a lot of instances, once they get convicted, they no longer have the ability to build a program they get kicked out, they get terminated, there's licensure issues. So, you know, do they go out and then become bank robbers, right? Likely not as the case because of this. Um, but what was interesting to me was that um, you've got here the top five districts where um, from 14, if as a fiscal 18, where healthcare fraud offenses, uh, you know, were uh, were convicted, right? Florida being, you know, the top one, um, because that's where you've got the big, sh the big strike force on that. So some interesting facts that come out, <clears throat> you know, in, in looking at that, that are, that are interesting. I also thought what was interesting is that 55% um, of healthcare offenders were sentenced uh, within the guidelines, meaning in 55% of the instances the providers were sentenced with uh, under the guidelines and then um, within the guideline range, meaning that when the calculations were completed, <clears throat> the judge did not divert from the sentencing guidelines. Now, one piece of this puzzle, we'll talk about this a little bit, Wade, is um, up until um, the, 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 what was known as the Booker decision. So the Supreme Court in, in really two cases, one was called Booker, the other one was called Fanfan, but the, the prevailing one is Booker. The sentencing guidelines up until Booker were the law of the land. Uh, unless, unless the offender had something that was um, within the guidelines considered um, to be a mitigating or an aggravating factor for the most part, judges were required under the law uh, to sentence the individual within the range of that sentencing table we're going to talk about. And then Booker and Fanfan came out and uh, it was ruled that the sentencing guidelines were to be advisory in nature. Now, understand that the whole purpose of creating the sentencing guidelines was to uh, limit disparity across federal sentencing, right? If a defendant gets convicted of a healthcare fraud offense of a million dollars in loss with a similar set of facts in Brooklyn, New York, they should be similarly sentenced to a similarly situated offender who gets convicted of something similar in the Middle District of California, right? There shouldn't have to be this very broad disparity. It was to create kind of a level playing field within the sentencing of federal defendants. But uh, Booker uh, came in the Booker decision, the Supreme Court essentially ruled that um, these should be advisory in nature, which created latitude. Um, but what we're really talking about is before that, were what we call departures, right? Upward and downward departures. And I would see them a lot. I'm sure you saw them pretty frequently as well, right? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, definitely. A lot of times it would just be, that would be one of your first kind of discussions with the prosecutor, because you, you could look at the table and have like a general knowledge of how it worked and things that affected it, whether it be criminal history or offense level. But then once you got down to the brass tacks of, you know, figuring out what, what we're going to, and this is before that decision, but what we're going to recommend to the court, you would go sit there with the AUSA and they would just, it was like tabs, they're going back and forth. Well, you know, this 
this statute is, you know, this offense level and there's like you say, there's mitigating and aggravating circumstances that you can plug in and come up with a, a number that's again, it's it's not a hard and fast number, but in the in the past, you know, they, they were pretty much um, required to follow them. They had some leeway they could go on the high end or the low end of the recommendation, but they had to follow them. Yeah, and that's where you get into these discussions on exposure versus loss, and and it's an important piece of this puzzle to keep in mind that the exposure number in the in the law enforcement parlance, the exposure number is what the payor thinks is the loss amount. At the end of the day, the payer might say we 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 paid a million dollars to this provider. Hey, law enforcement, it's your job to be able to prove what that loss amount was or not. It, not as, but we're saying our exposure is a million dollars because we paid them a million, <clears throat> whether that number is 1%, 10%, or 100%. So having having the ability to have those conversations in a salient matter is, in manner is an, an important piece of that. Um, so, you know, while we're, while we're talking about that, and we're talking about intended loss, so the sentencing guidelines <clears throat> have a quirky piece that I think is unique for healthcare versus other types of public frauds or financial frauds. And that is that everybody in the healthcare world knows that when a provider submits a claim for a dollar amount, they're not getting paid that dollar amount. There are very few instances that I can think of <clears throat> in which a provider gets paid near the amount that they submit. Uh, one that stands out to me is always pharmacy claims, right? Pharmacists, pharmacies don't submit a claim for a prescription for a million dollars, knowing they're getting paid $30. They submit that based upon what the actual fee schedule is. Co-pays are already built in. There's an understanding. And then, I, you know, I think in, in some of the workman's comp related stuff, there's some close to getting paid what you bill <clears throat> in the workman's comp world. But if we're talking about Medicare, Medicaid, in-network providers, when a provider submits a claim for $1,000, they know very well that they're not getting paid $1,000. They're getting paid on the fee schedule, uh, less any um, any deductibles, any copay, coinsurance, or anything along those lines. But the guidelines have this very interesting application note that essentially says that if an intended loss amount can be identified, the probation department should be using the intended that amount as the loss amount. So therefore, it is theoretically the case that if a provider bills a million dollars and gets paid a thousand dollars and that thousand dollars is identified as being fraudulent, there's theoretically the argument that under the sentencing guidelines, you could say that the provider's intended fraud was a million dollars. And as we just saw, <clears throat> the difference between a thousand dollars and a million dollars could be the difference between a, a, a year and a day sentence and a four year sentence. So it's an important piece of the puzzle. Interestingly enough, um, you know, where I worked and I know where you worked, we used paid amounts as kind of the prevailing way because everybody kind of understood that there was no way on God's green earth that a person that billed for, you know, a million dollars, they didn't get paid a million dollars. And so the argument was almost how do you intend? to you know, make that the intended loss amount, intent would require that you knew or had a reasonable belief, right? We're not lawyers, but this is kind of common sense, that you yeah. had a reasonable belief that you were going to get paid that amount of money. And that just wasn't really the case. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, I was uh, I was an expert uh, on a sentencing. We're actually gonna be doing a LinkedIn Live on, on this very case in a few months, but uh, I was an expert on a sentencing on this very issue where a provider 
was convicted after trial and the U.S. Attorney's Office was looking to get him for uh, DRG amounts, inpatient amounts that were billed. And this provider was a specialist and, you know, people were in hospital for, you know, 20, 30 days until they saw this provider and he saw them and, you know, for an hour did his services and that was the end of it. And the U.S. Attorney's Office was looking to get him for the cumulative amount of the billed DRG for the inpatient stay. Um, and, you know, I just thought that that was just an inappropriate way to, to consider intended guidelines. Um, and then interestingly, um, just this past year in the Third Circuit, I worked in District of New Jersey, which was part of Third Circuit. There was a recent ruling in the Third Circuit regarding intended versus actual loss and essentially negated uh, in this Third Circuit ruling that actual loss is the number that's really applicable and that it is not intended loss. And I was really excited to see that because I think that that's an important piece of that investigative and resolution puzzle that, you know, intended losses are numbers that are in most cases, right? They're made up, right? Yeah. Yeah, we we could never get away. I'm sure every district is a little bit different too, as far as what you can use as you know the intended loss. But I know in Central District of California, we could never get away with even considering that. So it was not an option. Right. And I think, look, to some extent, I think that district by district, if you have a district that's very conversant in healthcare fraud cases, working a lot of healthcare fraud cases, you start to just become, you know, a little bit more understanding of how the process really works versus an instance in which you have a district in which they they may not get a lot of traditional healthcare fraud cases. You know, in, in for example, the Appalachian region, maybe they're working a lot more of the Part D or the Medicaid or the drug diversion cases than they are necessarily traditional healthcare fraud cases. But so wait, I want to close out a little bit and have you uh, bring up that fraud, um, that, that table, which is really at the end of the day, once the probation department has done their job and has done the calculations and they've spoken with everybody they need to, sp to speak to, and they come up with ultimately what is the total offense level, and they've done the calculations on what ultimately is the offense category, right? Offense category is based upon prior convictions that the provider has um, or the defendant in this case. And that when you take those numbers, you ultimately get an, an the offense level. So if we're looking at the left-hand side, that's the total offense level. Uh, by the way, uh, people who plead guilty and do it in a timely manner and don't put the government to the test of having to indict you and go through all of this other stuff um, and, and you know, potentially put you through the task of putting on a trial. But if you plead guilty and you do it in a timely manner, you actually get points taken off of your offense level. You get a benefit by having saved the government to have to go through the machinations of a trial. But you've got on the left-hand side is offense level and then the criminal history goes across the top, right? Yeah, definitely. And and another thing too, you pointed out that like not dragging it out to go to trial can be beneficial too as far as the offense level, but even just participation, you know, if if the subject or whatever, you know, at at the onset of, you know, a search warrant or whatever, they de they decide that they're going to participate and provide documentation and that type of thing, uh, you know, be interviewed and let their employees be interviewed, all that stuff has a big offense or I mean a big effect on the uh, sentencing table as well. Right. And so for people that have never seen the sentencing table, if you're looking at the left side where it says offense level, you see zones A, B, and C, 
and then below zone uh, zone C, when you hit a fence level 14, <clears throat> you start to get those different zones equate to what the type of sentence must be. So if you're squarely in zone A, <clears throat> you're able to get a straight probation sentence, meaning that you can get, you know, six months probation, you can get, a, you know, a year probation, whatever it may be, you can, it's not a, there isn't a custodial sentence there. Zero to six is custody. Um, but you can get a probation term that is, uh, you know, a couple of years or what have you. So zone A is straight probation. You can get that. No custody. Zone B would be uh, potentially a, 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 a probation sentence with a home confinement, meaning you're on probation for two years, but you've got six months or four months of home confinement, right? Ankle monitoring or something along those lines. Zone C is what they call split sentence, which means that you can get, um, you know, if you're, let's say, a category uh, offense level 12 and a criminal history category of one, 10 to 16 months, a split sentence, five months in uh, federal custody at the Bureau of Prisons, five months of home confinement, followed by a term of probation. Um, and then obviously, then the last one is zone D is a period of confinement, meaning that uh, you don't have the option of uh, home confinement. You have to go and serve a period of time at the Federal Bureau of Prisons um, on the minimum end of that range. Now, what is interesting is that in the sentencing world, you know, oftentimes uh, people will hear about defendants getting sentenced to a year and a day versus a year. And the reason for that is under the under custodial uh, regulations, if an individual gets a sentence of a year and a day, they are entitled to what the Bureau of Prisons calls good conduct time or credited conduct time. And you're entitled to 54 days a year for each year that you're incarcerated. By the way, in 1986, with the inclusion of the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, the, uh, the federal government got rid of parole. And so under the old system of sentencing, if a defendant was sentenced to five years and they got out of jail in two years, they were on parole for three years. Under the sentencing guidelines, you must do 85% of your sentence in order to be released. And so if you're getting your 54 days of good conduct time, 54 days equates to 15% of a year's worth of sentence. So in, in oftentimes it is not uncommon to see a defendant get a year and a day because a year and a day would give them 54 days of good conduct time, which would get them out in about 10 months. If a defendant got sentenced to 12 months, they would do every day of the 12 months. So it is often the case that a defense attorney will try to argue for a year and a day versus 12 months, because then it really just equates to about 10 months. Um, but you can see here, if you're in zone D, you're squarely within the custodial range and you're going to get, you know, on the bottom end, a sentencing range of 15 to, to 21 months. And um, obviously, the higher that your criminal history category is, even if your offense level is lower, the higher your criminal history category is, the longer your period of incarceration is. And uh, obviously, as you can see, once you get down towards the bottom, uh, starting at a offense level of 37, if you've got an offense level of 37 and you're a recidivist offender, meaning you're a category six, 360 uh, months to life, 30 years to life is going to be the sentence. And that's the sentencing range that the judge can can order. And then obviously at a 43 or higher, because there are there are ways to make offenses higher than 43, you can get a you will have a life sentence. And since there's no parole, you don't have the opportunity to to get free.
So it's an important piece of the puzzle. I think, you know, Wade, I think I was fortunate having worked at the uh, at the probation department for a couple of years, um, having understood the sentencing guidelines. It, it certainly it certainly helped me. But, you know, from an OIG perspective, you become conversant in the guidelines just kind of by default because you're dealing with them. But from an SIU perspective, I think that having um, some basic knowledge of the guidelines, certainly, right, it helps you from an investigative perspective. It helps you to understand, well, if the biller was in cahoots with the doctor, that's a conspiracy. And there's some enhancements in the guidelines for conspiracies, right? So giving you the final word on this between the two of us, um, the, the guidelines from an investigative perspective become another tool in the tool belt, right, to help an investigator uh, understand different avenues to pursue for an investigation that ultimately could result in a referral to law enforcement. Yeah, and again, I think it's important to have those at least in the back of your mind as you're conducting the investigation because there might be little bits and pieces, you know, whether it has to do with, um, you know, like the person's role or the, again, the complexity of it, if they're using identity theft, there's all kinds of enhancements. And if you if you are aware that those will make a difference in the sentencing down the road, if you just kind of make note of that, I think it's it's beneficial so you don't have to go back and kind of recreate the wheel once the case is done and you're at sentencing and you, you weren't aware of this stuff and now you're going back through your whole uh, working file and trying to figure out if they, you know, reach any of these benchmarks. So it's 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 a good idea to have that in the back of your mind from day one of the investigation. Yeah, and that's a good point. The the word benchmark, it's a it's a good way to put it, right? Because while you're doing your investigation, you can highlight some of these things from that investigative perspective. So no one is telling anybody they got to go out and be conversant in the guidelines and how to do the calculations. But if you look at that, uh, if you look at that fraud chart and you look at that table, it just kind of helps you with guiding you. So <clears throat> good. Yeah, another another piece of the puzzle, right? It's all about just making yourself a more fulsome investigator and just having these tools in the tool belt to be able to have conversations where they need to be. So <clears throat> as always, Wade, it's good to catch up with you. Yep, absolutely. Everybody, thanks again for tuning into this week's OIG Roundtable. We got some great stuff coming up. We've got a whole bunch of LinkedIn Lives scheduled. Our next LinkedIn Live is going to feature two of our uh, long-term subject matter experts from the commercial and Medicaid side, uh, Carrie Mead and Joe Croce. Uh, I'll be moderating a conversation between the two of them about negotiating settlements and navigating the settlement world in the you know, obviously in the commercial payer world, negotiating a settlement for the highest percentage on the dollar in, uh, to increase ROI is uh, both a skill, a little bit of luck and a tactic. And we're going to talk a little bit about what some of those uh, hints, tips and tricks are for that. <clears throat> As always, if you're not getting our newsletter, please drop us a line. Hello at advise.advizehealth.com. Uh, please Sign up to meet with us up on LinkedIn. You can catch us on LinkedIn. Wade and I are on LinkedIn. You can connect up with us. Uh, and as always, we appreciate all of the time that you spend um, looking at our podcast, doing our LinkedIn lives. Any suggestions for any of those, please feel free to let us know. Uh, drop us that line at hello at advisehealth.com, uh, and we'll be sure to incorporate those in future podcasts. So again, thanks very much, and we'll see you on the next OIG Roundtable. Thank you.